and you're here with Daphne Beware from King on Screen. Yo, welcome to my summer layer. I'm your host, Sammy, children of the corny Yunnan. In his memoir on writing published in 2000, Stephen King shares a word of advice he got from his mother. Just a small child, he showed her stories he copied, literally copied from comic books he enjoyed reading. Sometimes he'd even add his own unique twists to these printed stories. Stephen King's mother reviewed these copycat stories and asked an obvious question. Did he write the story? To his credit, little Stephen King was honest and he told her he had copied most of it from the comic books he was reading. Write one of your own, Stevie, she said to him. I bet you could do better. Write one of your own. He listened to his mother and began writing. I've just told you how the story started, but you've always known how it ends. Almost 70 novels later, he's still following his mother's inspiration. Write one of your own, Stevie. As constant readers were grateful to his mother for that fire starter, Spark. That tender motherly spark ignited an eternal flame of pop culture. More than just books, Stephen King's work has created a loser's club of directors who've adapted his work. From Kubrick's Shining to Flanagan's Doctor Sleep to Darabont's Shawshank Redemption. To carry on that tradition is King on Screen, a documentary directed by Daphne Bioware. In King on Screen, she talks to many of the directors who have adapted King's stories, asking them to push back the mist on their process and to share how they successfully crafted their creep shows. Stephen King is the most adapted writer, and as if these works were buried in a pet cemetery, there's multiple versions of many stories. In King on Screen, you'll hear from Taylor Hackford, who directed Dolores Claiborne. Tom Holland got us thinner after Todd Williams told us to hang up our cell phones. All while we slowly walked the green mile with Frank Darabont, plus many more directors and adaptations. King on Screen is a fascinating documentary because as much as Stephen King has thrilled us and frightened us, these adaptations empower King's imagination with a distinct visual language. If you watched Tim Curry's It in the 90s, you know exactly what I mean. There's an obvious reason why many of my generation is terrified, absolutely terrified of clowns. Thank you, Tim Curry. As you'll hear in my conversation with director Daphne Bioware, King on Screen is made by Stephen King fans for Stephen King fans. Shall we explore the dark half of making a Stephen King adaptation? Sound, the final frontier. My Summer Lair is an enterprise, a pop culture voyage with a continuing mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new creators and celebrate established producers, to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. And now here is your host, Sammy Yunan. Hi, Daphne. Uh, or I guess bonjour. Is that the... <laughs> so... Absolutely bonjour. <laughs> okay. If you want to get started, we can kind of talk about all the scary things about Stephen King on screen, if that sounds good. Yeah, sure. Uh, so I recently saw The Boogeyman, which is a film adaptation mm-hmm. of uh, Stephen King's 1973 short story, uh, which is called The Boogeyman as well. So it had never been adapted before. This was like a brand new movie 
because uh, we have now multiple it movies. We have lots of pet cemeteries. We have Carrie's, uh, more than one Firestarter, more than one Shining, and so it was interesting to have an experience with just this like brand new movie that wasn't like old or an image we had seen before or something like Kubrick with The Shining. It was kind of neat because this is what your documentary King on Screen is demonstrating how iconic these images are. Um, did you end up seeing the Boogeyman? Yeah, absolutely. I saw it like a couple of uh, months ago, something like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, I really enjoyed it. And I think it's interesting because like you said, there are so many films that are being remade. And it was kind of refreshing to see one that has never been on the screen before. And there are so many great novels and great short stories uh, written by Stephen King that have never been adapted. So I'm hoping for more, uh, uh, you know, uh, for, for more uh, adaptations, uh, unique adaptations. Mm -hmm. Part of what your documentary, King on Screen, it features interviews with a number of notable like Stephen King uh, collaborators and directors like Frank Darabont, uh, Mike Flanagan, uh, Josh Boone is another one, lots more. So notably King who wrote and directed Maximum Overdrive, he's not in the dock. Is that scheduling? Is that a filmmaking decision? What was the reason behind that? Yeah, absolutely. I didn't want to have Stephen King in the documentary talking about adaptations because I think that if you are having Stephen King in your documentary, then you have a documentary in itself. You know, it it wouldn't. Have, I I really wanted to have the the filmmaker's point of view and to have an external point of view on Stephen King's work. So having him in the documentary would have been like mixing two different documentaries together. So it was something that was quite disturbing. And that's why I said, okay, uh, we are doing this, but I really don't want to have him talking. And I really want to have the film, the director's point of view. And that's it, not, not our point of view yet. It's interesting because there's a lot of unique footage in the documentary. Like I had never seen some of the Green Mile uh, footage where King actually visited the set and he sat down in old Sparky, the uh, the electric chair. And so that's just such a great image of just like him and Frank Darabont hanging out and King sitting in the electric chair. Yeah, it's it's uh, such a great moment, you know, because it's so you it's so emotional and you can see how they are like uh, having such a great time, you know, on set. So I thought it was uh, great to have it uh, in the documentary and to see like some behind the scene footage and even with a uh, Crip show, for example, we struggle a lot to find those behind the scene because uh, we can't find find them easily you know the creep show behind the scene mm -hmm. so it's something that we really worked um on and it was uh it was great to to be able to find all of them and there's a really fascinating theme that runs through king on screen a number of directors mike flanagan is one of them he talks about being too young to watch a horror movie he saw scary movies early on and that kind of scarred him for life but that truly was a rite of passage, especially for kids born in the 80s and the 90s. Uh, was that the same for you, too? Did you see a horror movie or a couple of horror movies way too early? Absolutely. I think it's uh, it's something that I really enjoyed, you know. And even the, the well, 
it's not really horror, but uh, the, the the first film I saw uh, on a on a big screen was uh, the Nightmare Before Christmas when I was free. So okay. I that's scary though. That was, yeah, well, for 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 many child, mm -hmm. I, for many child, I discovered, and I I, I was yeah. Uh, I didn't get why because I remember seeing the film and I was completely into it and I really loved the universe, you know, and I I was completely I I fell in love with that movie immediately, you know, and it's the first um, well scary somehow film that I've seen when I was very young, but I it's really the universe was talking to me so much and it's something that I really enjoyed and. Um, So, so I really uh, continue in that direction uh, regarding my uh, um, my movie taste, you know. And uh, I was uh, really into uh, Hitchcock's films at a very young age, uh, mm -hmm. loving Psycho, for example, and loving uh, all those films. And then uh, watching Halloween, you know, Friday the 13th. <laughs> And, and and making like some horror nights at home so it's it's really something that i had um very early on yeah yeah it was a good era wasn't it and i mean like king was part of that era as your documentary king on screen touches upon like those 80s and 90s movies uh really had like a good horror language like you were able to kind of talk about these things and like anything that was kind of scary kind of showed up in a film as a metaphor and you knew that if you could survive get to the sun up basically sometimes you would be okay like there was a kind of a piece to it too when you see films like uh, it's for example that uh, traumatize a lot of <laughs> generation yeah it's uh it's Yeah, I think it's uh, really, um, w when you're a child at the same time, it's something that you, you really enjoy, you know, being scared. It's something that is, um, it's an emotion that you, you want to feel. And even when you, you have siblings, actually, it's some so funny, you know, uh, telling horror stories at night, mm -hmm. you know, under the, the covers yeah. or the sheets and <laughs> And it's something that, yeah, it's something that we really love to being scared. It's something that we, we, it's an emotion that we are looking for. I want to stick with this theme of culture because one of the common elements in King on Screen, it confirms that Americana is like one of King, like it's part of King's work, that kind of Norman Rockwell, small town, there's this Americanness. Uh, to King's work, which naturally shows up in a, even in a lot of the adaptations as well. And I'm wondering, with your European background, how do you view those like American elements in King's books and the adaptations? Do you notice them more? Are they kind of weirder or like you just accept them? Because sometimes we don't notice them, right? Just being here. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's um, it's funny because in um, Europe has always been um, very much impacted by uh, the American culture. I mean, it's everywhere in Europe. When we were a child, for example, we were uh, putting on the TV and everything that we saw on TV were... Um, TV shows, American TV shows, uh, you know, we, we, we watched, uh, we, we grew up watching Friends, watching uh, uh, all those kind of TV shows that, that are uh, a part of the, the American culture. So when we 
as European, I, I think when we read uh, an author like Stephen King, you know, we we learn a little bit about uh, the, the American culture, but at the same time, we find references that are speaking to us because we, we know some of the things because, well, we receive them mm -hmm. uh, through or sometimes through, uh, through different medias. And uh, I, I didn't grow up with internet, actually. It came when I was a little bit like um, 12 or 14, something like that. So as a child, uh, yeah, I was um, a lot of that influence came through uh, television, for example, or um, through the medias, you know. Mm -hmm. Are some of the fears the same as well? Like, do Europeans have the same kind of fears as, of clowns as we do here? And like Pennywise? Uh, yeah, I'm sure we do. <laughs> I'm sure we do. Yeah, for, regarding the fears and everything. Uh, I think, uh, yeah, Tim Curry uh, did such a great job that every little kid on the planet yeah. is... <laughs> he ruined <laughs> clowns. <laughs> yeah. I know, he was fantastic in it. And... I want to touch upon that because, like, the idea, too, of, like, this fun and this imagination, which is kind of normally associated with clowns, you have this really great opening sequence in the documentary, and it's fictional. It's not a... I know a documentary tends to be, like, nonfiction, but this is a fictional, and you basically are this character, and you're lost in Maine. Um, do you have a way of describing kind of, like... I don't want to give away too much of the opening sequence, but do you have a way of describing it so that people get a sense of what it is? Yeah, absolutely. So this is uh, at the beginning of the documentary, you are completely entering into Stephen King universe and experiencing some uh, unusual uh, sensations and seeing some unusual things. And you are kind of uh, plugged into this universe and discovering Maine, discovering this street and entering at the end in a creep shop. Mm -hmm. with a lot of surprise there and we had a lot of uh, easter eggs for sure like we have 300 something like that references oh man to okay. Different <laughs> okay i have homework to do i got a lot of them but i don't think i got all 300 <laughs> yeah yeah there are plenty and uh, also the fact that we were able to have uh, great actors that uh, played in previous adaptations on set with uh, Jeffrey Deman and Alexandra Paul and Amy Irving. And it was amazing, you know, having all those great and amazing actors on set with us mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, entering themselves into the, the Stephen King universe. So, yeah, that was a, an amazing experience. And we really loved uh, shooting that fictional introduction. Yeah, that's it's a great phrase that you're using Stephen King universe because that's literally what it is. Like in one of his recent books just a year or two ago, Billy Summers, there's a small moment where a couple of the characters are in Colorado and for just a moment they see the Overlook Hotel and then it's gone and then they keep going and it has nothing to do with the with the actual story, with the characters, with anything. But if you know these references, as you said, these Easter eggs, they're peppered throughout all the books and it's kind of... Um, it's kind of disappointing in a way because some of the adaptations don't always do the same thing where they layer it. I think you had a great scene from Dolores Claiborne, right? Where uh, where she says, like, you know, she says to her husband, like, you're going to go to Shawshank Redemption, or you're going to go to Shawshank, right? Like, because he committed a crime. 
And so it's neat that, that there's like little things like that that kind of connect the, the movies. But for the most part, the universe that Stephen King built within the novels is fantastic. It is a universe. Yeah, absolutely. And he managed to create this whole universe, like you said, with uh, the Shawshank uh, uh, prison and everything else. And I'm not even talking about the Dark Tower because this is like huge a, a great muscle yeah. you know yeah it's huge and there are so many things to say about that and he created some kind of uh completely different universe that mm. is not like ours you know in, in in this uh and it's quite amazing to 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 see how he was able to to take us you know each time on this great journey when you are able sometimes to do, to, to to find references to other uh, books that he wrote and yeah it's i think it's um part of his legends somehow and it's uh, one of the reasons that um people love so much his work you know it's like you feel a little little bit at home every time you open a stephen king uh, novel you know mm -hmm. But also your opening sequence, because it circles back to what Mike uh, Flanagan said about Kubrick's Shining, which is that it gave it a visual language. He had a great line where he was talking about how, like, you know, you'd be reading The Shining, but you would see it in your head because that movie is so iconic. You see the elevator and you see Jack Nicholson and the axe and the bar and all these kind of things. And it's interesting because, like, when you see the opening sequence of your documentary with all the 300 Easter eggs, you instantly have these kind of visual touchstones, right? That, like you said, inter instantly enter you into the Stephen King universe. Yeah, yeah, this is something that we really wanted to 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 have in the in the fictional introduction. And for example, there is this um, shot with uh, the elevator opening and balloons coming from the elevator. So it's something we really red balloons uh, too. On. Red balloons mm. for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's completely the reference to between it and The Shining. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, we, we worked a lot because we really wanted to have like these sometimes uh, cross references, you know, and um, even having the, the crib shop, it's uh, it's uh, amazing, you know, being able to build everything in that store. And even Greg Nicotero, he lent us his um, puppet from Crip Show, and we can see it in the fictional introduction that we made. Uh, we, we have it in the window, you mm -hmm. know. In window so it was a uh, great to to have a lot of little uh, you know elements like that um, a lot of them are hide you know but uh, even in the dialogues between the characters it's all uh, king based you know and it was important for us because if we want to make like it's uh, a huge reference a, a, a huge homage mm -hmm. to Stephen King's we really wants to to dig and to have a lot of details like that on even in the dialogues it's really important you know yeah it is yeah and some of the king adaptations are for a lack of a better word like i find them terrible like i don't i can't stand firestarter and i can't stand the langoliers i hate those too but your documentary is not about criticism so i'm curious with every adaptation what were the guidelines you were using to find something positive or something unique to talk about, especially for the movies that were maybe not as strong as the original like King novel from which they were adapted? 
Well, I think, first of all, I think we, we can always find something good in a film. You know, there's always like something interesting in every film. And at the same time, you know, for example, uh, if we talk about the longer layers, I think for sure, you know, the, the last scene with uh, the, the CGI, uh, that is a little bit, uh, you know, um, So you can well, say it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a little bit, uh, you know, it's not like uh, the, the, the perfect CGI, but mm -hmm. when you are talking to someone, you, you totally understand that it's a matter of budget, you know, mm -hmm. and filmmakers have what they can with the budget they have. And a thing that is sure is that adapting Stephen King uh, requires a lot of budget for sure, because... Right. There are a lot of things, uh, the, like like we said, with the universe and all the imagination he has. You you automatically need a huge budget to make a Stephen King adaptation. So I think, uh, yeah, we can find great things in every every film. And it was something that I didn't want to. I didn't want to judge uh, the filmmakers' work because I really wanted more to uh, discuss with them about how they worked on the adaptation and what was um, what was the the process of um, of making uh, this film. Mm -hmm. And it was more like um, talking with them about their work than having a judgment. It's something that I don't want to have, you know. Mm -hmm. And I think like, like that uh, there are a lot of people who say that Maximum Overdrive is like a terrible movie, you know. But at the same time, I think that when you are watching a film like that, you, you just, you have to take it for what it is. It's just a lot of fun and you just have to watch it like not trying to uh, analyze it, but mm -hmm. just have a, a great time, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, Maximum Overdrive, too, is another, like, it fits in with the, the King movies in terms of, like, it's a really iconic villain, right? That Green Goblin truck is, like, a really scary uh, truck, and it's very menacing, and it's up there uh, with, like, Annie in Misery, and, like, we mentioned Tim Curry already, like, the, the, uh, the villains especially for the Stephen King adaptations are really good. Jack Nicholson in The Shining, like... The evil always manages to kind of translate from the from the novel to the film itself. It's always kind of neat. And where other parts, maybe like you said, maybe the CGI or something, the budget got limited. But the evil itself always manages to come through, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And it's something that is very interesting in, in King's work because he's using a lot of metaphors uh, as well uh, when he's writing. And uh, I think it's uh, amazing because when we are talking about his villains, you know, mm -hmm. there are so many layers. If you look at someone like Annie Wipes, you, she's not just a villain, she's so much more, you know, and you can see all why she's doing this you can understand and she's got so many flaws and at the same time uh, you are really attached to her you you find in you find her touching you know in some way and i think it's uh, what makes stephen king's strength as well is is its his ability to to write um, amazing uh, villains because they are not just uh, cartoons villains you know it's mm -hmm. so much more it's really deep and it goes uh, to um, 
our fears and who we are and what would happen of us if we were in that situation or another one because uh, for sure it's ugly i mean I, i'm sure everyone uh, might be a great person you know but when when you are in a very stressful situation uh, it can bring like the the worst of yourself and we are not like um we, we can't avoid that yeah i mean annie's a great example from misery because she didn't necessarily see herself as the villain right she just wanted a good book <laughs> Right. Which is all the same thing we all want from Stephen King. Like write a good book. I'm not going to chop off his like ankles or whatever to like make him write it. But I would I do want a good book. You know what I mean? And so she was incredibly misguided. But at the same time, she never viewed herself as the, the bad guy. She was helping him as in a, in a way. Right. That's how she viewed it, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a, a question of loneliness as well, because mm-hmm. she's very lonely. And so it's a lot of those demons that we have inside us and that might sometimes uh, take command, you know. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So as we're wrapping up then, like, you talked to all these filmmakers for King on Screen. Uh, You obviously read a lot of the Stephen King novels um, and kind of compare them to their adaptations. From all these interviews that you did... What, what makes for a good Stephen King adaptation? Is there certain things that you have to get right? Is there, like, uh, can you deviate from the material? What to you when you're, was your takeaway in terms of what makes a good Stephen King adaptation? I think you can debate from the, the source material as long as you keep the essence of the author. And it's something that is not quite the same because when you see a, a film like The Mist, for example, where oh, uh, Frank Darabont changed the ending, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and I think it, it, it's, so, it's such a great ending. And, you know, it's like... It's not always making a good adaptations. A good adaptation is not about uh, being absolutely one hundred percent faithful to the material. Mm-hmm. It's understanding the material and being able to translate on screen uh, the the essence of the author and the essence of the characters and the essence of the story mm-hmm. and you change some things and if you change a little bit some of the characters it's okay because at, at the end what matters is are we uh, you know uh, do we feel that the essence is is there or um, are we able to connect with those characters mm-hmm. because if you don't connect with the characters then it ruins the experience in terms of the experience is there a possibility of expanding on the material either like a follow-up documentary or a book or a podcast? Because, I mean, there's like, not only just there's lots of Stephen King adaptations, but there's like, there's a whole bunch of the TV shows as well you kind of didn't touch upon. Like, there's things that you can kind of add and kind of get into as well. So is there any hope of expanding the material, like either as a follow-up documentary or a podcast or a book? Yeah, absolutely. We plan on uh, having a book because we... Uh, we have like 40 hours interview, you know, and wow. we had to make like a little bit less than two hours for a film. So it was very difficult to cut and uh, to find where 
took us. So we thought it could be great to have a book with the full length interviews and uh, as well some kind of behind the scene uh, talking about the documentary and how we made everything and from the start so yeah it will it will happen i'm not sure when <laughs> but it's in the bag all right that's fair and at the beginning of this conversation you said you want to see uh when we were talking about the boogeyman you said you want to see some other king uh adaptations that haven't been done yet was there any in particular that you have a craving for that you want to see on the big screen that's like kind of like boogeyman where it's just like brand new and we haven't seen that before yeah, sure, absolutely. There's a uh, Jumaki, I think, could be oh, great. Yeah, uh, yeah Joylan as well. Yeah, that's a I, fun one. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's a great one mm -hmm. as well. And it's the two that I have in mind, but yeah. uh, two could be great in uh, as films. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I think uh, they are very interesting visually both. Yeah, Joyland. It fall a little bit into like the Green Mile kind of thing. You know what I mean? Where it's not like classic Stephen King. It's not like a It or something like that, right? You can kind of do a little bit of like, uh, you can have a little bit of fun with it, but it's it would be more like Stand By Me and like kind of more the lighter Stephen King, the one that always people are shocked to find out is actually Stephen King. Yeah, I think, uh, and even, well, Jumaki, you've got some uh, scary um, things in it. Uh, but yeah, I think those uh, those are really amazing, and even some of, uh, for example, the long walk. I know that they they have a script and it should be adapted, um, and it's an interesting one as well because uh, the long walk is such an emblematic story, and uh, I think it would make uh, a great film. But that's not easy to do with. We have such a book. <laughs> <laughs> they keep adapting the stand, right? And that was not an easy book to do, right? It's the end of the world and like it's, I don't know, how 1,500 pages, like, but they pulled it off. So I, maybe with uh, as kind of filmmaking and CGI and all kinds of other things kind of develop, it might be possible eventually to pull off the, the long walk. So. Absolutely, yeah. Well, thank you so much, uh, Daphne, for like hanging out. Uh, we covered quite a bit, as much as you, uh, you covered quite a bit as well, way more in King on Screen. Uh, it's an impressive documentary uh, because, yeah, the, as Mike Flanagan said, it's given us a visual language, which has been terrifying us for years. Like we said, we talked about Tim Curry and like the elevator and Shining. Like it's, uh, it's amazing because as much as the novels scare us, that visual language in the film scares us as well. So it's interesting that your documentary was able to kind of capture that and kind of convey uh, the essence of those fears. Yeah, well, we, we, we tried uh, to, to, to talk about all that. And yeah, it was a, it was a, a lot of work, you know, but mm -hmm. uh, at the end, we are pretty, pretty happy with the result. Yeah. yeah. Yo, that was director Daphne Bioware talking about her Stephen King documentary, King on Screen. I'm your host, Sammy, and this is My Summer Layer. Check the show notes at mysummerlayer.com, mysummerlayer.com, for King on Screen screenings or streaming dates. King on Screen will make you want to revisit many of these classic Stephen King 
adaptations. But watching this doc after all the Marvel movies have come out prompted this observation. Is it possible to establish an Avengers-style Stephen King universe? Remake Carrie, the first movie, then Firestarter, the second movie, then those girls team up with their superpowers, pair them with the Cujo dog and the creepy kid from The Shining to do evil, evil in quotes, maybe like a gray area, government work for the shop. How fun would that be? It'd be like an Avengers meets uh, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen tossing some X-Files paranormalness. Yo, I would see this opening day. Opening day money. Alright, that corny idea aside, that is one of the overlooked benefits of Stephen King. King on screen touches on this too. King's work is a playground for your own imagination. For you to see and to think up strange tales. Even if you're never going to be a best-selling writer, that invitation to play is tantalizing. Always RSVP when you get an invitation to play, to dream when you're awake, because it is through imagination that we can defeat most, if not all, monsters. And now a My Summer Lair PSA. If you enjoyed this conversation, some good news. My pal Sammy Newsletter, let us extend the conversation. And, I know, you think of email and you think of negative connotations, you think of work. You think of that sweet senior citizen in your life who keeps forwarding those weird chain letters things so that they welcome good luck. All of that is true. All of that is email. That's because for those people and those emails the E in email stands for electronic mail. So what if? What if the E stood for experience? What if it stood for event? What if it stood for excellence? Wouldn't that be exciting? Email doesn't have to be email. Does that make sense? Go to mysummerlair.com slash subscribe to sign up for the weekly pop culture My Pal Sammy newsletter. You will be elated you did. Thank you so much for listening to me in a Stephen King world. Horror movies, yo.